Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> okay. Well, today, Zoe and I are back with Foibles. We seem to be really on a jag here about women actors, women writers. You know, we're just kind of like on a jag because we love that stuff. But yeah. Women in culture, what is feminism, what isn't feminism. But we did spend a lot of time on Rudolph Valentino and uh, Errol Flynn, so yeah, we'll get, we'll get back to our beloved men. Uh, I, I keep wanting to do a Basil Rathbone, a little teaser there, something like that. But anyway, so we're, we're, we're going back to talk about Jacqueline Suzanne, who's someone that I would guess that people, say, under 45 maybe, don't really even know who she is. It's just so interesting how these things work in culture. Jacqueline Suzanne was one of the, if not the biggest, blockbuster authors of the 1960s and early 70s that existed. I knew her name. I knew who she was, and I was a kid. So I, her uh, writing and her subject matter was not appropriate for children. So, But I knew of her through the culture, through talk shows. She was everywhere. And now... Nobody really knows uh, who she is that much, unless you're a real movie aficionado. Or I certainly didn't. Yeah. So she's uh, her most famous work is Valley of the Dolls. She wrote a few other novels. And I think the big question here is, is she an author in the lineage of a Jane Austen or a George <laughs> Eliot? <laughs> we did not talk about this piece ahead of time, so we'll see what comes out. <laughs> Uh, certainly, I think we can say not in terms of quality right. of writing, but in terms of getting inside at least the head of a certain types of women and their lived lives, the, act- the actuality of their lives and the actuality of their fears and how they look at things without, I think, idealizing them in a way that makes them a badass. So the kind of women that we all really kind of like. So speaking more straight to women. So just a little bit about Suzanne before we get started. She was a very beautiful young woman. Uh, She became an actor. Uh, That really didn't pan out that well. I don't think she was probably a very good actor, but she ended up deciding to write uh, a book. She was born in 1918. She died in 1974 of cancer. So she was only 56, pretty young. And 74 is like really kind of right at the end of her you know, last book. So she was just writing right up to the end of her of her work, appearing in public. She was on all the talk shows. She knew all the famous people. And from her background, she had been on Broadway in a play called The Women. And that's pretty famous. Claire Booth Luce wrote that play. And it's really about, I don't like it because it's all about these sniping women who are, and then fighting over this man and their fears about their looks. And, you know, a lot of that stuff that's just so annoying and old but yet not untrue in certain ways so it it was filmed in the 1930s and it had uh, Joan Crawford was in it Norma Shearer was the main woman in it Um, and it was a big it was a big hit and then they wanted to remake it recently there a lot of women uh, powerful women were trying to get it made to work together and then never went beyond that so you can say they weren't that powerful if it had been Clint Eastwood and Tom Hanks doing the men, I'll bet it would have gotten made, frankly. I'm sorry, I have to say that, but I think it's true. But anyway, she was in that play on Broadway, so she was in that 
she was very familiar with that kind of writing about women and women's dynamics and things like that from the artistic point of view. Plus, she also knew a lot of famous people, even before she became famous herself. She knew about uh, actors and their life behind the stage. She appeared on TV, so she knew about TV performers. She knew about movie actors, and these show up in her books. Her books always take place in the stage uh, world, um, Hollywood, the publishing world. Modeling. Modeling. So these are all things that she did. So she knew them from the inside. And so basically, Suzanne was a commercial writer. She was all about making a buck. And frankly, we tried reading Valley of the Dolls. She, it was terrible. Yeah, the writing, bad. You do get this sense, especially from watching the movie adaptation, that she could have been kind of like vivacious and even witty in terms of conversation. She and was. Like you, could see that, you could see that in the talk shows. So she's definitely intelligent, but her writing sucks. Right, and I don't think she really cares. She probably threw it off. She wasn't trying to sit down and craft a sentence. She was thoroughly a commercial writer. She wanted to write something popular. She was, she, but she also wanted to write, I give her this integrity, she wanted to write something honest and true based on her experience to what she knew. And she also knew that would sell. That's part of what makes it interesting is that the subject matter is often so pulpy, so salacious. There's lots of drugs, there's lots of sex, there's lots of famous people and things like that, but they are real. And so then it adds a little bit of poignancy at certain moments because it's, yeah, it's not just made up pot boiler stuff. Right. It's based on things that were really issues at the time, such as abortion. And at this point, abortion wasn't legal. So, there, so there's that issue. Uh, uh, will come up against like breast cancer, um, you know, things yeah, that, that just depression and, and right. drug use and things like that too. Right. Yeah. And ambition and all these things exactly. Sexual politics, yeah. She did that a lot. So uh, basically, um, Suzanne uh, got writing in the mid '50s. Uh, she published published a couple novels. One called Yargo, which was a science fiction novel. We have not looked into these two because it doesn't seem to be worthwhile. And then she did one called Every Night Josephine, and that uh, came out in 1962. And then uh, she ended up finally publishing her, her masterwork, shall we say, which was Valley of the Dolls uh, in 64. Uh, and uh, then she followed up with her next novel, The Love Machine, in 69, and her final novel, right, you know, that the last one that she published right before she died practically was Once Is Not Enough in 1973, and she died in 74. Or she would have just kept going. And she certainly kept working all the way up to, as long as it was absolutely possible, she did that. <coughs> and so we've watched most of the movie adaptations of the final three novels she wrote. Do you have a sense, so The Valley of the Dolls is absolutely her most famous movie. It's the best movie that was made that we saw, the best of all that. Was it the most popular of her books, do you think? Well, they all three of them were bestsellers. Okay. All three of them went onto the bestseller list. But I would say Valley of the Dolls is the most enduring. It's one that's still referred to today. People still know about it. Yeah. And the, I think partially, I think primarily actually, because the mo that was the best movie. Because of the movie, yeah. yeah. And when I say best, I kind of mean in quotes, best. It's a good bad movie. It's a pinnacle of camp. Yeah. It's a cult movie. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting. It's engaging. It'll keep you watching. 
I did want to say one more thing about Suzanne before we get into her themes, because she does write a lot about women being needy around men and, and uh, getting dumped or uh, not uh, the man refusing to marry the woman or, you know, just this, this, this neediness. I would like to point out that she was married uh, to the same man from 1939 until her death. So that's about 25 years. And so a solid marriage. A solid marriage, and she was a superstar. And they, you know, he was okay with that, with her being a superstar. So we can, without reading further into her life, we can surmise that maybe she, she had some stability that uh, belies what she's writing about. So she's not necessarily just writing how she is. Right. She's yeah. just, ex she's exploring it. Yeah. Right, exactly. And who knows, everybody has uh, insecurities, but I just wanted to point that out. And she, did she have any children? No. And she was totally a career woman, and that's what she wanted to do. I would like to, to say that Jacqueline Suzanne, I think the, the women, really the women in her story with, on a certain scale were independent, sexual, even highly sexual, um, ambitious in the extreme, women who were faced with, I hate to say it guys, I'm so sorry, but I got to bring it, the patriarchy, the patriarchal systems that keep the, the girlfriend down, you know, you know, where a woman goes in to uh, apply for a job who has a college degree and they think, well, you can be a secretary. Pretty enough. Yeah, yeah you're pretty enough to be a secretary. So that's your, your credentials, not the fact of what your actual skills are. Or saying, well, gosh, you have a college degree from an Ivy League school. Maybe we, like any man walking in here, we'd consider you as a junior executive. Mm -hmm. So we don't see that happening in her books. We see probably what the real experience was is, okay. Or, gee, you're really pretty. The only way you can make it is as a model. Mm -hmm. Or, okay, you can sing. So, you know, you can be a performer and that's a way into success. So. Let's start out with Valley of the Dolls because that's really where we see actually all of her themes kind of come together. It's a fairly complicated plot, so we'll try not to belabor a whole bunch of detail on the whole thing, but it's really a triptych. There are three women. They do end up being friends. Anne is a New England uh, blue blood who wants to get out into the world. She wants to get out of this stifling environment, and she goes to the big city, New York, where she meets like a... Uh, an Errol Flynn kind of character, it's supposedly a hot publishing guy, and she works in the publishing world, but then she gets discovered as a model and she becomes an internationally famous model, and so now she's super successful. And then there is Neely O'Hara, played by Patty Duke in this particular version, who is a dynamite talent. She's kind of like, I think she's kind of based on like Judy Garland in terms of uh, the fabulous voice, the intense emotionality, the kind of erratic insecurity, uh, but she's... The drug abuse. And the drug ultimately. abuse, yeah. She becomes a star on Broadway and, and a star in Hollywood, and then she just completely falls apart. And finally, the uh, third character is Jennifer. Very interestingly, she's only seen as a body, a uh, beautiful body, large breasts and blonde hair, and she's tall. So she's a model. That's pretty much all anybody thinks she's good for. And what we learn about her is that she's pure of heart. She is, she's intelligent in terms of practicalities, 
in terms of uh, seeing things as they are. She has an emotional courage that, in particular, the other two lack, and a steadfastness. And uh, she, she's played by Sharon Tate, which is doubly tragic. And if you couldn't just surmise from that, she's sort of the Marilyn Monroe of the film. Yeah, kind of, except she's, her personality, her character isn't anything like Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Because Marilyn was extremely erratic and un- see our podcast series yeah. on Marilyn, but she was very ungrounded and very, um, very damaged. And this woman is not. She's, um, she's grounded. She's sincere. She's steady. I guess I mean more of the the role that she's put in and, and what's placed on her by everyone else in terms of right, being like a, a beautiful bimbo that's yeah. sort of sexualized beyond other women. Yeah, we even see one uh, element in the uh, or one scene in there where she's doing like a Vegas showgirl thing. And the guy says he puts his hand up to cover her face so that he can, you know, ju- make a judgment because he doesn't want to see her face. Because who cares about that, right? So, the, so there are these three women, and they come together. They end up meeting each other and forming fr- a friendship. And a lot of shit goes on. I don't even, I don't even kind of want to get into the details of things. No. But, but basically, they all have sex outside of marriage. They all are seeking their own ambitions in their various ways. And the I think a lot of what comes out of the movie, which we have discussed, is the fact that is this feminist? Is this regressive trash? Because the women there are worried about their looks. Well, Anne isn't worried about her looks because she's always perfect. And she's always uh, the right weight and always beautifully dressed and everything. But the other two are always either trying to lose weight or um, exercise their uh, chest muscles to keep their breasts up. And, uh, but, and they're all worried about the men. Is he going to marry me? Or he married me, but now I'm, you know, I find him dull or, you know. And then how to keep his attention. How do I yeah. keep his attention? And and that can be fairly, fairly grating on our ears today. Um, also, uh, in a way, it's interesting because each of them have their own experiences. And although Anne is perfect and the New England blue blood, you know, you get a sense that she kind of feels she wants to have sex with this guy named Lion. <laughs> she wants to have sex with Lion. He says, I want you, but I'm not going to marry you. And then she keeps wanting him to marry her, and she keeps bringing it up. And it's like this really old, annoying trope. But is that anti-feminist? I don't know. I think the other piece of it is, so it is about women and their careers. They're all working until, you know, presumably a couple of them might choose to not work in a family if they get married. Um, But it's all about their careers, and thus it's, part of that shift away from just like the traditional narratives of women in, in the home and yet they are so preoccupied still with their station and with men and everything and it's a very consumerist era so that's something that we could talk more about later too but you know yes I'll try not to get too much on my Marxist soapbox but basically <laughs> this sort of the question of like is and what kind of feminism is possible in a consumerist society and also, what I would also say, another way of looking at it, maybe in a different track, also is what kind of feminism 
is or is not. And when we say when I say feminism, first of all, I'm not talking about doctrinaire feminism. I'm just talking about women being equal, women being able to live a life without being uh, dictated to by by the patriarchal structures, like saying, "Oh, well, we can tell you what to do with your body," or that. That's just generally what I'm talking about within the capitalist world that, in which we live. Yeah. Uh, the questions of agency, consent, things like that. Right, you know, exactly. Which are ne- necessary for us because we are just people that live in this world. Right, and that's for everybody. But we're talking specifically about women and the... Uh, so we're not talking about that that for other other groups or configurations of people in this case. That's why I'm using feminism, yeah. just to distinguish that. Um, so essentially, um, what I think is interesting is, is the one character, Anne, who has it all together... She's got the more standard, usual thing you see in Hollywood of needing the man, wanting the man, even though she had the agency to decide to have sex with him. And then ultimately what she does is she goes, well, you're not going to marry me? Oh, I'm not going to have sex with you anymore. So they break up because she doesn't want to continue in this way. So there we have, huh, that's a lot like real life. You know, that, that happens. And... Also, that then he finally breaks down because he does want her. He says, okay, I'm go- I'll marry you. And then she's like, nah, I don't think I want you after all. I want to be on my own. It's very interesting. She takes the old, old thing about, oh, need me, want me. Oh, you know, the kind of woman who, I mean, not that she was doing this, but the, the kind of dynamic where, like, where the woman's like calling to see if he's home or what's he doing, you know, kind of stalkeriness. And... Um, neediness and flipping it and then uh on the other hand uh, on the other hand she she goes back to her hometown and decides there's no place like home you know i want to go back to the old conservative values of the solid life and the the family home and and the, the church picnics or whatever uh, yet at the same time she refuses marriage with this guy so it's that's that's where Suzanne is smart. That's where she is good with her her writing and her um, character creation. Even though writing it up is terrible, she really creates fairly. I think characters almost worthy of the George Eliot. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't go that far. Okay. But <laughs> I kind of think so. Just because of the predicament they get in, and it's always a complex thing, and there's also always these con- contradictory facets yeah. to what happens and why. So, okay, maybe not. I, that's how I feel. Because it is, I mean, it's just like, it's like a Dorothea uh, in Middlemarch or whatever. There's this woman, she seems to be one thing, and then she's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm conservative. Okay, now I'm not, I'm going to get rid of all those old tropes and the, the church and the, and the old family and the getting married to the boy next door and da-da-da and my, my Ivy League education and I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to be this free woman. And then she does that. And then she falls into the old pattern of, oh, and being needy to this man while she's an international superstar model. And then she goes back to her old town and says, oh, I'm going to start going to church again. I'm going to go to the picnics. She's not necessarily going to marry the boy next door. She's indicated she's not going to marry anybody. But she moves back into the family home. She, she takes all of that back up again. She begins, she's dressing back the way she did in the conservative, you know, pearl-clutching or the pearl and the sweater kind of stuff again. And then, but she 
But at the same time, she doesn't go the conservative route of finding a husband to get married to, to validate herself because she's found her own validation in saying, I'm going to be independent, which does not comport with the environment she's gone back to live in. And so I think that that tension that uh, Anne ends up experiencing when she, go, when, when, she's, when she makes those choices requires her to be a very strong, go from being maybe a, a, a staid, uh, fairly grounded, but rather conventional character into being actually a very quiet revolutionary. And then on the other hand, there's Neil, well, Neil, it's the, like Neely O'Hare, who is the Patty Duke character, hilarious per, uh, performance by Patty Duke. Yeah. Patty Duke. This is the only character whose name I remember. Yeah. Well, yeah. How can you forget? Because she screams it 50 times during the movie, <laughs> Neely O'Hare. You can't forget it. No. But Patty Duke was actually pretty embarrassed about her performance, and she did kind of, you know, yeah. shamefacedly talk about it later in her her life, but but it's magnificent. I mean, it, it is. is it is. It's overwrought and it's in crazy and it's camp, but it's it's a fairly magnificent uh, eruption. It was, she's a little bit more straightforward. She's poor, benighted, young, great talent who ends up on the slide downward with her drugs. The pressures bear on her too much and. I don't know whether she's too sensitive to them or she just becomes kind of a shitty person because of all the resources and, and attention and everything she gets, maybe a combination. But. Well, I took it to be that she came from a not, a not very good background where she didn't, I mean, she didn't have like good parents and was not supported or stable or whatever. Yeah. And so then when she started getting, every, she was getting everything she wanted, but she was also having huge pressure put on her to perform that she couldn't hold that because she didn't have the inner character built up from being nurtured and supported throughout her life. And even though she had a husband who was very supportive and everything, it didn't heal her. It didn't make her okay. It didn't yeah. make her feel okay. And a lot of people go through that. They go, I got everything I wanted. And why do I still feel horrible? Totally. You know? And had I only known kind of thing. So, uh, so she plays that role. And then the um, Jennifer role played by Sharon Tate She's just she's very interesting. She has no desire, no ambition to be anything but a wife and a mother. She's driven by her mother, who constantly denigrates her looks and everything, just over the phone um, to her. But you get the sense that she, or she's supporting her family, I think, financially right. initially. And her mother's is like a stage mother. So yeah. She's driving her. It's her mother's ambition that's driving her. Yeah. And she's very sweet, and she, you know, and she wants to be a good, dutiful daughter. And so she ends up um, following this, this career path that she doesn't want that ultimately leads her into uh, porn and uh, performing mostly really softcore European-style porn. That's, she needs the money. She's really a martyr, and she marries a man who then becomes... Huntington's chorea, which is a genetic disease. And his, his sister had been... For some reason, without telling anybody, it just doesn't make any sense. His sister has had been like driving women away and uh, and and uh, sort of keeping him on a short leash, money wise, because she's trying to save up. Because she knows he's going to develop it. It's all, like almost almost certain, because it's one of those things where if, men, if it's yeah. if, and it's true, if it is in your family, it's like you have a fifty fifty chance of developing. It's a horrible horrible disease, and so he does develop it, and so. 
he, you know, he's a man. He wants to have a family. He wants to have, you know, agency too. And so he runs off and he marries Sharon Tate's character. And the sister never tells anybody. I mean, they yeah. might have behaved differently had they known. Right. That's very weird and annoying. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so she marries him and, and then he goes down with the disease. And so she needs to get a lot more money, which is why she ends up going into these porn movies, yeah. uh, in order to pay for his care. And but she just, you know. She does it unquestioningly. And so she's a very much a martyred character. Literally a martyr, if you will, because she gets a diagnosis of breast cancer. They say, we're going to have to perform a radical mastectomy, cut off your breasts. So she's sitting there going, the only thing I have are my breasts. That's the only, you know, there's no way she could have been in the, making these porn movies or making money the way she knows how, with the skills she has, with no breasts. and Because she doesn't have any education. And she can't get any education in the time she would need to get it to make enough money to take care of her husband. So it's, rather than sapping their, their savings, she ends up killing herself so that be taken care of for the rest of his short but sad life. By far the most tragic part of the movie. It is, and she plays it well. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's the only one where I really feel sad. Totally. You know? Actually, if we can go on a tangent for a minute. Sure. So... She kills herself by overdosing on pills. Yes, on so dolls. I think we should talk about the me the name of the film and the meaning of the name. Very good, yes. So the, the name The Valley of the Dolls, and at the very beginning of the movie and the book, there's this sort of prelude where Jacqueline waxes poetic about the Valley of the Dolls and how when you climb to the peak, you uh, find you're alone or something like that. And they call pills dolls. And so the reference to The Valley of the Dolls is going to a place where you're taking a lot of pills and basically going under the influence of sedatives. But I think, and this was my, what I thought it meant before I knew anything about the content of the movie, the Valley of the Dolls to me sounds like Los Angeles, right? Like a place where it's full of, you know, beautiful people that are treated as mannequins. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure it's probably slang that was maybe going on in the world that... Uh, Jacqueline Suzanne lived in because I'm sure she knew a lot of people who took these these uh, types of things because we see behind the scenes of a Broadway show we see in, into the publishing world where Anne is working and we also see in the movie industry where Neely ends up in the movies and we also see in the sleazy kind of liminal side of the porn industry you know, we kind of get a sense of what it, what it was like now there's another character who's very important, a woman, again, talking about this feminism. And she's an old school woman. She'd be somebody who would have been like a Joan Crawford or whatever. Her name is Helen Lawson in the movie. And she's somebody who, since this would be the 1960s, she'd probably be around 50. So this is a woman who potentially would have been at the very end of the silent era, maybe, uh, old time Hollywood. Uh, they were going to uh, cast at the time Judy Garland in the role because Judy was a little bit old, was older, and she looked a lot older than she was, and she was a powerhouse talent, which Helen Lawson was supposed to be a great singer, and unfortunately, you, you actually can see this in the extras. They did some screen tests with Judy with her outfit, and this is fairly shortly before she died. And if you want to cry, she is so thin. 
and so weak and she's trying you know like to be Judy Garland but she can barely stand up she actually kind of like wobbles and almost seems like she's gonna fall down because she's just so weak and so they had her wardrobe done and everything and it ended up that they said we just can't use her so they got uh, an actor named Susan Hayward instead and Susan Hayward was a pretty big star at her time she's no Judy Garland she doesn't have the the voice that Judy Garland had. In fact, I think I think they dubbed her her singing. Yeah, that's pretty clear. Yeah, and she and it's fun. It's 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 so odd because they just re uh, retailored the outfits that they made for Judy Garland and they put them on her. I mean, and she's full of vim and vigor and energy uh, as a woman that age who's still a star at the time. Reminds me a lot of people like. I, I was thinking of Betty Davis, even though Betty Davis wasn't a singer. But the fact that for women at that time, coming through the, the, the 1930s and 40s and 50s, they had to be so hard, so hard in order to be able to make it because the, the challenges, the, the sexism, the brutality toward women in uh, trying to prevent them from having stardom and having success. And so few women made it. And you can see, as you, if you're an aficionado of old film, you'll see these, you know, really sparkling, oh, wow, what a great, you know, how pretty she is, or how, what a nice actor she is, or, wow, you know, this is somebody really kind of cool and special. And I'll look them up, and they always tend to drop out, or get married, drop out of the business, or they end up, their, their uh, career just kind of peters out very, very quickly because they can't make it, they can't push through. And Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, uh, Lana Turner, Barbara Stanwyck, a few of those people were able, women were able to push through. Uh, but if you, if you count up how many men do and how many women do, it's very imbalanced. So Helen Lawson is that tough as nails broad who's going to get it there and she's going to say it and she's going to back herself up and she's going to get what she wants and she's going to do what she wants and, and fuck everybody else. She'll just walk right over you. And we learn this immediately when the film starts because she's the star of the play that Neely O'Hara is in. And Neely's doing a song. She's got like one song, I guess, in the, in the show. And they're, they have her singing it and everyone's like, God, she's great. She's really, really great. And Helen Lawson sees this, and she says, fire her. Nobody's going to take the spotlight from me. And so what's interesting is that you hate her for it, but then again, if she'd been all nice like that, she wouldn't have been the biggest star she was. I mean, it depends yeah. on what you want. And then later what we see is Neely O'Hare does, even though she hates Helen for doing it, and she thinks it's so unfair, she does exactly the same thing. She learned from it. That's another um, vision of femininity from an older generation that had it even harder than these women had it. If you watch this film, you have got to stay at least until the bathroom scene with Helen Lawson. And this is a very, very famous scene. You can see it on YouTube, too. And Neely O'Hare, because Neely hates Helen. Hates her, hates her, hates her. And Helen... She doesn't hate Neely. I mean, she does hate her, but she doesn't really hate her. She, she's kind of above it. It's sort of like she has disdain for her. And they meet at this party that's for Helen that Neely shows up, and she starts to take the spotlight. So they, they end up running into each other in the restroom, maybe on purpose, and they have a cat fight. 
And then there's a whole wig pulling thing. And, and Neely throws the wig in the toilet, Helen's wig in the toilet. And, and it's just wonderful. It's so classic. I don't think Jacqueline Suzanne set out to write a book about how unfair this world is to women or to do any kind of feminism at all, but I do think she set out to explore modernity and how that has changed women's position in society while also still remaining this like oppressive force that shapes the choices women have. And so it reminded me a lot personally of Sex and the City, which is the seminal TV series about like women friends in New York making it in their careers and then making decisions about their relationships and shopping a lot. To me, that show is entirely pretty much about consumerism, right? It doesn't really explore what they do for their work at all, just the fact that they do work and have sort of high incomes and then they do a lot of shopping with it. And that consumerist relationship is the primary relationship in their lives. And so the men, even though it's also all about having sex with men and like, oh, is he going to be the one that I want to marry? The men are also consumables in the show. Yeah. And the modern era of like a powerful woman, men also become the sort of accessories and objects to your life. And so it's about choosing what accessories and objects and trying to attain that that you want. I think the thing I find most intriguing about her works is not like, is it feminist or not? Because there are competing viewpoints that exist today too. I think the point is more about how much personal autonomy do we have in those choices. Right. And, and how much are we conditioned to make certain choices that maybe we aren't in our best interest or might not actually even align with what we really want. And if we're being practical, like we, we just live in the world. So yeah, a lot of the choices we make are limited, are influenced and indoctrinated and et cetera. But what agency do we choose to see in them? And so in a movie like this, what agency do we choose to see in the women in it? And um, Anne is obviously the one, well, maybe Anne and Sharon Tate's characters are the two who are very clear by the end uh, of what some they kind want. Of and they also have a moral basis. And mm -hmm. I think that's the thing out of the, of the movie is that the people who have some sort of solid character, you know, inner moral basis are Anne and Jennifer. Those are the two. Even though Jennifer goes to a sad end, it is her choice. Mm -hmm. uh, and Neely O'Hare, she's just totally ungrounded. And Helen Lawson has a basis. And in a way, you can kind of admire her, but she's not somebody you'd want to be. And she doesn't seem very happy. Although there is this great quote that she, she says to Neely in the bathroom after they have the fight, and Neely rips off her wig. And this is all happening at the same time that uh, Neely's career is on the downslide. And she's kind of kicked her husband out because she doesn't think he's good enough. And her new husband ends up being... A cheater. A cheater. So Leading to an insane pool scene in which she also loses her mind. That is very worth watching. Yes, yes. Yeah. So basically, in, in the bathroom, after they have their fight, and uh, Helen Lawson is going out like a star, even though her wig has been pulled off and all you can see is her white hair, she girds herself and she's just going to walk out 
like she is, and that then she says to Neely, they drummed you out of Hollywood, so you come crawling back to Broadway, but Broadway doesn't go for booze and dope. Now get out of my way. I've got a man waiting for me. She is pretty awesome. <laughs> and even though you don't like her earlier in the movie, you kind of have to love her in this scene. Yeah, yeah. So basically, it really is about their own, I don't know, their own beauty as a consumable. It seems to be that way in culture generally. Men, men even more so now than it used to be. But women primarily, your product is your beauty, is your looks, is your presentation. And it's interesting because when I was young, selling out to the corporate interest was, oh God, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be a sellout. Authenticity, whatever, you know. When Joe Baez and yeah. Bob Dylan, you know. And now it's sort of like, that's the aspiration, is to how can I create a brand? And what is a brand? Making yourself into a consumable product. There's that, and then and then it's just sort of the feeling, and obviously this works more in media than it does in real life, because in real life we have to confront each other as full people, but commodifying the human relationship is mm-hmm. kind of like the final frontier of commodity at this point in time, at least, which is, since everything else is being made and sold as well. Which is very interesting. In Valley of the Dolls, each of the women have uh, relationships, and again, Neely... Her relationships are commodities. She's looking for value from, you know, what value is she going to get out of this husband? And, part, of course, part of the value is self-affirmation that is impossible for her to get because she just doesn't have a receptacle to be, to affirm herself. But she's looking for value from these guys. How are you going to make me appear? What are you going to do for me? Whereas Anne and Jennifer are both looking for actual substantive relationships. And they're not looking for what can you do for me. They're looking about what can we have together. And, in, and particularly in Jennifer's point of view, she is asking, what can I do for you? It's very interesting. Whenever I think of Jennifer, if anybody has seen Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves, she, in terms of her sacrifice, is a lot like the woman in Breaking the Waves. It's the same kind of uh, martyrdom. It's very interesting. So that's another connection there. But I think that the, the thing about Jacqueline Suzanne and, and her women that she creates is she's looking for the same thing that men are looking for. is ambition. She wants power. She wants freedom. And, uh, and when I say power, I mean the power to choose what she wants to do. The power to go into a restaurant and get the best table. She wants the celebrity and the recognition and what, what comes with that. Like here's a quote from her, which I think sums it up for pretty much all of these characters, which is, she was climbing Mount Everest and the air was invigorating and wonderful. Even if every second verged on crisis, this was part of living, not just watching from the sidelines. So again, it's the rejection of the conventional lifestyle as being on the sidelines. You know, you're being shunted into the home, which I think for a lot of people it was. But I also don't want to denigrate the fact that within that home, there was life and that woman was having a life and having relationships and and being creative you know not every woman but that it did exist where that could be a very full and creative life too which i suppose her she nods to that in the character of Anne, who chooses to go home and and jennifer who wanted that too yeah but but being booted into that I think she's saying, again, she's saying that, which is a very feminist message, and I guess what it is, is there's a lot of different people 
who have a lot of different ambitions, just like men do. So I think another thing that she that Suzanne said that I think is also key, and you see this, there's there really aren't poor people in her book so much. If they are poor, it becomes the pivotal thing in their trajectory because, uh, like Jennifer, even though she needs money to take care of her husband, she isn't poor, but she's she's struggling to get enough. And uh, Suzanne wrote. Money bought freedom. Without it, one could never be free. Which and in a consumer society is true. She, Yeah, she's hitting on that. I mean, you know, I would argue that even with money, you're never free, right? Because a big piece of that is, so there are characters that get everything they want and they're still not happy. Right. So then what? So that's consumerist, but yet also has a deeper meaning. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Because here's another uh, point from Jacqueline Suzanne. Everyone has an identity one of their own and one for show. Again, we see that in the book, that they're each kind of struggling with what they have to produce for show. Like, particularly Anne, very obviously, as the model, Mm -hmm. you know. I would say particularly um, Neely and and Jennifer because she shows them struggling with their work a lot more than than Anne does, you know. It's Uh, easy for Anne, yeah. Yeah. She She never seems to get overworked or or struggle for money like Jennifer or, or get have to take a shitty role like Jennifer and Ely. And so, yeah, it really shows um, the burden on women, even when they get into the workforce, to continue to produce and to produce more and more the more famous you get. So I also think that's something that Jacqueline saw personally. Oh, absolutely. And I think she just noted that that in general, that the way things were set up societally, it was harder for women. It isn't like men don't have to do that too if they get into a position where they have they have to yeah. produce more and more. Sure. So, but I, I she's coming from that very particular lens, and she's coming in at the time when women are starting to do this more and more. Right. Right. And 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 it was believed that they couldn't do it, and they didn't know how, and they also didn't have a lot of the resources because again, uh, I don't even know if birth control. I think birth control just come on the scene, um, so that was like amazing. But abortion wasn't legal in the sixties women couldn't like like a single woman couldn't just buy a house because she couldn't get credit unless a man would sign and so they, they were they were held back by the structures like the financial structures and that that actually had no basis in like reality but were put in place to keep you know just like redlining was put in place to keep uh, non-white people from uh, having the freedom to be in certain areas and here's another quote from Jacqueline Susan I'm just going to sprinkle these throughout a man must feel he runs things, but as long as you control yourself, you control him. Walks the man for of himself, he will always walk alone. Oh, of his own, he's moving on. Oh, of his own. Uh, the love machine is actually from a male point of view. And it's about a man who is a TV executive, and he's hot, and he's young, and he kicks everybody to the curb, and he sleeps with women in a wanton way. He's the kind of man who has the women hanging on him and begging him to, oh, please, you know, don't, don't sleep with anybody else. Love me, love me, love me. But inside, he's hollow and he's empty. He's very American Psycho. Yeah, he really is, and he's really got that look, and like Christian Bale had in American Psycho, and the the actor who plays him is John Philip law who was kind of the handsome guy of the of the period i had a crush on him 
he's very beautiful. Um, yeah. So I get that part of it. And they, you know, imply he's an incredible lover and stuff. Yeah, because so. he's the love machine. <laughs> and he has his own theme song at the beginning of the film, which yeah. is really the best part of the film to me. It is, yeah. Dion Warwick sings that. So that makes it even extra good. And that movie, it's kind of dull. I don't recommend it. I'd recommend Valley of the Dolls. And then the last one is Once Is Not Enough, which is uh, what Suzanne said that she basically wrote that one around the Electra Complex which is a Freudian idea that, that's the uh, analog to the Oedipal complex. So it's the woman who wants to sleep with her father. And she makes that pretty clear. Oh, right away. And Kirk Douglas plays the father, an older Kirk Douglas, so he's really not hot anymore. And so this Deborah Raffin, who was a, a model at the time, I remember she was, she kind of made a splash for a few years because she'd been a, uh, on all these covers and now she was acting. And so she's, like, sleeping with all these gnarly old guys. We're talking 30 years or more older than her. I mean, not in real well, life, obviously. But I think she movie. falls in love with one gnarly old guy specifically. Yeah, but... but she wants to sleep with her dad. Yeah. Come on. We all know. I mean, I mean she makes it obvious yeah. that he's kind of a substitute for her dad. Yeah. In the, it, Jacqueline Suzanne makes it obvious. So, and that one's really quite dull, and we couldn't even get through it. So those, those are her works. It's hard to say that the second two films don't match up to the the source material because Suzanne is not a good writer. But Valley of the Dolls, the book is not good, but the people in it are interesting and the situations are interesting. And when they made the film, they really made the most of that. Yeah. And it is pulpy and it is, but it's juicy too. Mm -hmm. And, but I will have to say that when Jacqueline Suzanne saw Valley of the Dolls, she hated it. She hated that movie. Which is so funny because it also seemed pretty faithful from what we read of Valley of the Dolls it, to her novel. Yeah, I mean, the dialogue was taken straight out of the book <laughs> yeah. pretty much. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Maybe she didn't like who was cast in it. Or the melodrama of it, maybe? Yeah. yeah. I didn't find anything specific, so. But not that I went in a deep, deep dive. Maybe she was just confronted with the sort of um, banalities of her work, yeah. which are also there and didn't like seeing that. Right before Suzanne wrote this, there was a book published called Sex and the Single Girl, and it was written by Helen Gurley Brown, who was the editor and the dynamo behind Cosmopolitan magazine. She's the one who created the Cosmo Girl. She's the one who made it a lifestyle magazine for women on par of like maybe what Esquire was for, for men. You know, kind of like really speaking to what the, the modern career-based young woman wanted and sexual young woman yeah and sexual young woman absolutely versus say like good housekeeping magazine which would have been for the young matron or the the woman staying at home this was for the woman who's out there making a career who wanted to get what she wanted out of life and live a live an exciting full uh, active life including potentially if she wanted to sex and it's interesting because this book was it was huge 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 and it was a, one of those things that kind of disrupts the cultural conversation. And it's kind of explosive. And it's so interesting because it came from the establishment. Because Cosmo, was, Cosmo wasn't an underground magazine or anything. It was a standard publication like Life Magazine or whatever. But she brought this kind of re- revolutionary energy. And she didn't mean to be feminist. But there really was a feminist push to what she was trying to write. Because... She was talking about your hair and your makeup and your high heels and your hors d'oeuvres and the drinks you're going to serve and all this, but in kind of a Barbie kind of way. When Barbies were created, 
the the woman Ruth Handler who created Barbie Barbie didn't have a kitchen Barbie didn't do any cooking there were no aprons in Barbie's uh, wardrobe Barbie was a hot young career woman getting out there driving her her uh, sports car wearing her suits her little suits to work being highly fashionable and beautiful and kicking ass and doing work. And Barbie really is that kind of kick-ass career woman that actually became a trope. And Ken, of course, is the arm candy. And I remember as a kid, I had one of the first Barbies. I had the one with the dark curly hair and there was no Ken. And then finally there was a Ken and you're like, what do I do with Ken? I don't even know. He doesn't have good clothes, you know? That's funny. And so, and so uh, that was Barbie. So she wasn't, so she's going to have a party. She might mix some drinks, but then she'd order in her hors d'oeuvres. She's too busy to cook. And so uh, Sex and the Single Girl was really kind of the Barbie manual. I mean, it was what Barbie wanted to know. And that's what a lot of the young women were wanting to know. How can I live this groovy lifestyle? And so she created that. And then we see this rippling throughout the culture and you see it in Valley of the Dolls. You see it in all of these books. These women are embodying a lot of these principles from Sex and the Single Girl. And in fact, they made a film out of it, which is funny, with Natalie Wood, mm. where she, I, I remember seeing it back when, and it's kind of like, for the time, kind of racy. Basically, she was just trying to create a, a lifestyle guide. She wasn't trying to get women to have sex if they don't, you know, unless they wanted to. And it's really funny because Helen Gurley Brown, she's another person, another woman like Jacqueline Suzanne. She got married to this guy, to her husband, David Brown. And it's very sweet. Not a terribly good looking guy, but very devoted to her. And they were close to the same age. They got married and he died when he was 93 and she died when she was 90 and they're buried together. I mean, they were married for decades. So she had this one stable, loving, supportive relationship with the man. So in a way, both these women are in their own lives kind of exemplars of the kinds of relationships that one might like to have. One of the things I think is very funny, Helen Gurley Brown, she was, she was very sex positive. And she was sex positive for all kinds of people, not just heterosexual people. She, and she mentored a lot of people, uh, a lot of people of non-heterosexual uh, preferences and non-white people. She looked for talent and she was really happy to nurture that. And, uh, but she, and she didn't see herself as like this big feminist icon. And so when her book came out, you can imagine how the, the male press particularly criticized it and made fun of it and put it down and everything. <laughs> and this is a quote of what she says about her book. She says, this is how it was for me. This is how I played it. It's just a pippy-poo little book, and people come back with this diatribe about its great social significance. Well, it's just because nobody ever got off his high horse long enough to write to single woman in any form they could associate with. <laughs> so nice. Yeah. So anyway, I think the importance of that book, again, is, has been forgotten. And again, it doesn't fall within. It's not like Mother Earth. It's not coming out of the um, academic or... Um, canonical second wave feminist writers, uh, philosophical writers. It's coming from the commercial area. It's coming from, I want to wear high heels. I, I met, I talked to this woman, she, was, she would have been a generation uh, older than me. And she goes, yeah, when I was younger, back when I was in college, I'd look at women wearing high heels and I would just hate them. I would hate them so much. She says, really? Because 
I wanted to be able to wear high heels too, but she didn't feel like she could because that's not the right thing for women to do. I thought that that's a very interesting thing that this commercial, yeah, I'll wear these clothes that really are kind of oppressive in a way because I can't really walk in them very well, but I think I feel sexy wearing them and going, that's where they kind of really brought the seismic books and uh, articles and points of view because everyone in the culture could relate to them. Whereas the more hardcore, philosophical, incisive analyses of what's going on was just stuff a lot of people either didn't want or they weren't interested in. So these are kind of the feminist texts, Valley of the Dolls. Well, I think that they're, they're texts of women's modernity I mean, they're not feminist. They're, commercial is the right word, right? Yep. Like yep. Th- the answer in the book is buy all this stuff to feel empowered, mm-hmm. which is just, it's not feminism, but it's also you now have the means to make a lot of autonomous choices about your own life. Oh, that's feminist. So you can decide to call yeah. it feminist or, feminist or not. It's just a word. Yeah. You know. Um, it's but complicated. Yeah. It is complicated. It, it definitely is complicated. And when And when you're going into the more... I, I'm not quite sure, ma- mainstream isn't the right word, but when you're going into the feminist movement mm-hmm. with those writers and stuff, they are actually, in a way, trying to uncomplicate it. And then that ends up making it a bit kind of inflexible and kind of joyless in some cases. And there's the tension between, again, the, the personal and the collective. Yeah. And a lot of the, the sort of consumerist stuff comes at the expense of women in factories across the world or what have you. And so... The, the more political movement-based feminism says, like, unless we all collectively do this thing, we'll never be collectively liberated. But that can be repressive in and of itself. Right, right. And Which is the same, same thing with socialism or any ism where it's like you need, where you need collective action. And we haven't found the answer to that yet. No. But sometimes I'll, it does feel good to wear a sexy dress. Yeah. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Well, let's just put the, I mean, you're one, you're one to say it because you know. <laughs> I found this pretty interesting, and I just thought it was going to be like kind of a nothing burger when we first talked about maybe doing this for the podcast, but yeah. I think that there's a lot here. Oh, there's one more thing we should mention, and that is that Roger Ebert, the famous film critic, film critic, I guess he must have loved Valley of the Dolls, right? Because he wrote a pulpy kind of sequel to it called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is actually the first thing we saw, and that film came out in 1970. And it was really kind of boring, unfortunately. I remember a lot of L.A. party scenes, and that's kind of all our um, scenes of parties that were packed with people wearing different things and doing random stuff. And right. that's kind and, of all I remember about it. Well, it was directed by Russ, Russ Meyer, who is known for his, doesn't even really amount to softcore porn. exploitation Yeah, exploitation movies. But Meyer, I don't know, uh, he's not the greatest director in the world, even though he, he has some deathless classics like Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. But I found the film kind of, I'm, I'm sorry, Roger, if you're listening, Press from him. heaven, from <laughs> cinema heaven that it's uh, kind of vapid and overwrought and kind of like proud of how, oh, it's being so transgressive, but it's not really. Maybe it is, but it's not doing it in an interesting way. Just goes to show that there are some brilliant critics that... uh, Can't write a movie script. Yeah, can't actually do the art that they critique. Yeah. Even when they do that very well. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) A lot of the time. So uh, out of this, the only thing we recommend is that you definitely should watch Valley of the Dolls. The rest of it... Take it or leave it, but 
check out Valley of the Dolls if you want to have more insight into a huge part of American culture and thus global culture. Exactly. <laughs> All, right. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Graham!